Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome to Special Edition. I'm Paula Dagnan. Let's get right to it. This week, we will meet a doctor from Long Island, New York, the mayor of the city of Hazleton. We're going to find out what high school will be holding its graduation on the track at the Pocono International Raceway. We're also going to find out what has to happen in order for barbers and hairstylists to get back to work. And we'll also talk the upcoming election on June 2nd. Let's start off with Intercom's Doc and Jesse and Rocky and Lissa. There is so much going on here in Northeast PA, and we try to keep you up to date with as much as possible. A uh, friend of the show who is uh, a great guy and give us a little time this morning, of course, is the mayor of Hazleton, Jeff Cassatt. And Jeff, uh, do us a favor, give us an update on Hazleton. We've been hit extremely hard. Nearly 4% of our population has tested positive, which I believe would be one of the highest per capita rates in the country, number-wise, like New York. However, New York is like about 1% of their population has been hit positive. We're at four. We are testing at an alarming rate. But you recently extended the curfew to try to help combat some of those numbers, correct? Correct. I put out a second declaration, which gives a couple more hours to the curfew from 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. Council did extend that through Monday, May 11th. The curfew is not the really important part of that. It's the other stipulations that went into it. Because I was always a believer that the transportation to and from work were really the petri dish of where it is fester. Not necessarily inside working facilities, but on the way to work. We have a lot of van companies that go back and forth, ride shares, you know, four or five people jumping in one car yeah. and going to work. And that's where I really believe the virus exploded on the ride. So that's one of the stipulations we have in our curfew is that a maximum of four non-related people in a vehicle within the city limit. Now with the curfew, if you know, you're out after nine o'clock at night and you're not going to or from work, what happens if you get pulled over? It's like any other police situation. The police will pull you over. You have a chance to explain yourself. And it's going to be up to the police discretion whether or not it's a valid reason to be out. The curfew is important to us in the city of Hazleton because we want to limit the number of contacts made with the police department. So far, we have 42% of our officers have lost time due to the coronavirus, whether it was being sick being tested, taking days off till the results came back. And right now, 10% of our department is out on leave because they did test positive. So the curfew has 
hidden effects to it, which are more important than keeping you home. It's to limit the interaction between my police department on motor vehicle accidents, nonsense calls, traffic stops. So there's a lot of other things that went into the curfew. It's not just that I'm trying to penalize anybody for being out there. You have so many businesses and great businesses in Hazleton, and they're probably really itching to get back and open. Any plan yet? Like, do you have a number in mind that you want to see before you decide to open some places up? We have not closed any businesses. We have just regulated or emphasized the governor's guidelines. So the governor is the one that closed down the businesses. We are just enforcing the social distancing and the interaction on the streets for a percentage of the day. You know, we did close our parks and playgrounds to physical activities. Right. You know, we are not allowing basketball games to happen. But our parks are still open if you want to go sit and have lunch or ride on the swings in a one-on-one situation with your child. One of the things, and I'm hoping, and Jesse and I talk about this all the time because we're both itching to get things back to, you know, what we considered normal. You still have plans for 4th of July. Tell everybody about what you're going to do in Hazleton. We plan a huge event on the south side next to the big black mound, they call it. Mm-hmm. The last two years, we had over a 1,000 people there. Last year, I think we had 12 food trucks. So this year, I did a lot of improvements. I put in five pavilions to make it more of a community park. So I'm really hoping that everything is calmed down enough where we could have one big community event and the people could come together for some concerts. You know, we have live music and entertainment throughout the day. So I'm just really hoping that by that time we could all come together and celebrate and kind of put this in the past. Well, that would be great. Mayor Jeff Cassad, thank you so much for giving us time today and we're pulling for you, buddy. Thank you. Like I said, we try to get all the people here for you, get as many answers as possible for coronavirus and everything else going on. Our guest today, Dr. Rajiv Fernando, who is an infectious diseases specialist based out of Long Island, New York. And hopefully we can answer some of the questions. We'll talk about wearing gloves and all kinds of things like that. But the story that came out last week, doctor, was we heard Pepsid AC could possibly help. Is that true? This is a study that was actually done in China. They divided two groups. One is the more impoverished uh, population and the other was the wealthier population. The richer people got the proton pump inhibitor, Nexium. These drugs are used to treat acid reflux and the poorer people got Tamotidin. The people who got Pepsid did better overall. I'm not sure that that's enough to say this is a wonder drug. I certainly wouldn't pose that right now, but that's where this is coming from. I think in the U.S. we're desperate to find any drug that we can use to treat. Now, when patients come in admitted to the hospital with COVID-19, there's really nothing we can give for these people except vitamin C, Z, and zinc. In certain cases, when they're very severe, we use plasma exchange and antiviral remdesivir. But there's really not much we can do. Hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin out the door. They're not useful anymore. And actually, hydroxychloroquine causes more harm with cardiac arrhythmias. If you had to estimate, how long do you think before we find some sort of treatment or a vaccine or something to make us all feel a little less nervous and a little safer? I think the drug that probably works right now is the direct acting antiviral drug, Remdesivir. But it's in such back order. All hospitals in the U.S. and Europe are ordering it. So the only way someone can actually get Remdesivir is if the patient is pregnant or less than 18 years. With regards to a vaccine, I'm sorry to say this. I wish I had better news, but it's going to take a while. And my concern is with the second wave coming up after the summer, we won't have another vaccine ready to go. So even though as we start to open up our economy and move forward, it's very important that we keep doing our social distancing. Samsung is actually coming out with an app on one of their phones that if you're within six feet of someone, it starts buzzing. We certainly can't go through this one more time. Our healthcare systems are all fragile, broken down. I work in an overflow hospital, one of the last open in New York. They just keep coming in because the other hospitals 
was just so broken down. What do you do when you're seeing, you're watching TV, and then you start seeing where they open some beaches, and you see what looks like a million people all crunched together? What's your take on that? That's very, very difficult to watch. And these are coming from states that use their beaches to bring in tourism. I work in the Hamptons and, you know, in the summer, everyone wants to be in the Hamptons. So these are really challenging situations. But if you do open the beaches, I think there should be a lot of rules, very stringent rules, the six feet distancing as usual. Try not to congregate in areas, have police officers there. Don't bring too many objects like beer or soda, soccer balls, volleyball. These are all items that one can keep passing along, touching and spread infection over there. And doctor, as a parent, I saw a new study that was kind of alarming. It said that young kids are showing signs. It almost seems like toxic shock syndrome. As parents, what should we be looking for with our children? Yeah, we are starting to see a few kids getting sick right now, which we knew initially before. We'd never seen them, but I'm following kids across the country and we are seeing symptoms of that. So with toxic shock syndrome, one of the things you can do is if someone has fever, they're lightheaded, they're falling down, want to check the blood pressure make sure it's normal if it's not right away take this person to the hospital and uh, kind of go from there they need a lot of fluids and they need a professional physician to evaluate them let me ask you this one last question i don't wear gloves you know i clean my hands a ton and i use hand sanitizer but i do not wear gloves is wearing gloves bad sometimes i actually think wearing gloves is bad because it gives you a false sense of security when you're wearing gloves you're touching all kinds of things throughout the day and then we keep touching our face constantly hundreds of times during the day and you know how we get infected it's through the nasopharynx or it can also be done from the oral cavity so this just is a setup for disaster absolutely do not recommend wearing gloves well dr fernando we want to thank you for your time we look forward to talking to you again soon thank you so much for having me and stay safe america imagine graduating from high school and crossing the finish line at the pocono international raceway intercoms rocky and lissa have the details. Pocono Raceway is going to be hosting North Pocono High School's uh, Class of 2020 graduation coming up next month. Imagine graduating at the racetrack. I can't. That would be so unbelievable. It's just a phenomenal idea. I'm so happy they're doing this. And we have Pocono Raceway President Ben May on with us right now to tell us all about it. Yeah, so Ben, how did this come about? Yeah, so, you know, credit due to uh, to Brian McGraw, the superintendent at North Pocono School District. Brian, uh, you know, I, I've never met him and didn't know him, uh, you know, and, and he reached out to the track and said, hey, look, I, I've got some disappointed seniors. Let's uh, let's talk about it. And, you know, and we were like, this is amazing. We, we'd love to be a part of it. We'd love to assist. And in any way we can, uh, the Mattioli family has, has a longstanding legacy in the community of, sport, of supporting valedictorians and uh, supporting the school district. And so it only made sense to do it this way as well. But I, I think the concept could be really fun. I mean, the, the sad part is that, that these seniors and uh, a lot of folks are getting gypped in, in so many ways here. And it's really disappointing. So we're, we're thrilled to be able to help in, in our little bitty way. Talking about a memorable graduation experience like no other. Uh, you know, having your commencement at the track and then the added bonus after your name is announced, you get to drive across the finish line. It does have a, uh, it does, you know, when you, when you sit there and think about it and try to visualize it, you know, if the kids decide to decorate their cars and, you know, maybe their grandparents and they've got their, yeah. 
you know, some extended family, you know, watching on our, you know, watching their name go across our jumbotron and, you know, streaming it. They're watching it on the streaming from our infield, you know, seeing the car roll across the start finish line. I mean, it most certainly will be memorable. My, uh, my college roommate is a principal in New Hampshire. And so when we were going through this concept, you know, I, uh, I, I called him up and I said, you know, what, what do you think? What are you going to do with your seniors? And he said, can I come to your racetrack? Um, so obviously not feasible, but you know, I think the enthusi- I think the enthusiasm is shared, you know, across our region here. And uh, ironically, Daytona and Texas Motor Speedway are also doing something uh, similar. So it's kind of cool to see our industry um, giving back. Oh yeah, you guys yeah. are going to make national news for this. This is such a once in a lifetime experience for the kids. I mean, that is magnificent. You're going to have other senior classes that are going to be jealous that they didn't have this situation that they get to do this because this is so cool. <laughs> oh, good. Thank you. We think it's we think it's cool as well, and you know the fact that we have our own internal FM radio station, so you could sit in our you know in our infield safely inside your vehicle as, yeah. as a grandparent or an aunt and uncle and. And, you know, listen to the ceremony, stream the ceremony. It, uh, it, it's all, it all can come together and uh, will come together pretty nicely. So the North Pocono okay. ceremony is Friday, June 12th? And I have not seen them set a, a firm date. Um, okay. I know they were talking about the 12th, but that could change. But, yeah, I think tentatively they're looking at the 12th. And then, and then all of this is, is dependent on making sure we are, we're doing the right thing for our communities and we can, we can continue to do it safely. I think we all believe that we'll be able to uh, come mid-June, um, and we're sure hopeful we can deliver for these young folks hey ben one final thing now nascar racing is returning this month what about pocono this summer uh do you have any plans in place everything's still tentative yeah i think we've all learned since early march that we've got to continue to to be fluid and understand you know the state of affairs um you know especially in in northeast pa where everything is so different county by county so yep as of today uh, our races are still in place and, and re- ready to be held, but we uh, we know that there's a lot of decisions to be made, and you know NASCAR has decisions to make, Governor Wolf has decisions to make, so we just continue to be patient. You know, I think all of us have learned uh, learned a lesson in patience over the past two months. Um, you know, speaking for folks like myself who who were you know always in go mode, and you know we were selling race tickets, and we're doing this, that, and the other. <laughs> yeah. Um, to becoming to becoming a uh, work from home individual and a uh, pretty poor first grade teacher. Um, I've got uh, <laughs> I've gotten some learn some patience myself along the way. Darn that Common Core. Well, Ben, Nick, everybody at Pocono Raceway, thank you for everything you guys do for the community. You have such great hearts. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's in our it's in our DNA. I mean, Doctor Rose built this in this company, and we uh, we like to keep giving back. And um, you know, again, huge huge thanks to to Brian and the team over at North Pocono. You know, they really have the visionaries here and uh, we just want to help them put on the show for the kids. Thank you again so much. Have a great day, Ben. Thanks. Take care. Don't go away. More special edition to come. Welcome back to special edition. I'm Paula Dagnan. Barber shops and beauty parlors have certainly been missed during the quarantine phase of the coronavirus. And I've meant to ask Frank Andrews how he keeps himself so well coiffed during all of this. Frank and Mark Davis decided it was time to find out just what it would take to get those businesses open again. Frank wanted the answers, and he gets them. 
I spent some good time over the weekend doing some research on barbers and beauty professionals because I realized that there's a great deal of frustration out there. I came across one of the best organizations with some of the most information, and that is the Professional Beauty Association. And wouldn't you know, their communications director grew up in Wilkes-Barre. Of course. <laughs> and I talked to her in Los Angeles, and she arranged to have the executive director with us, Steve Sleeper. He's on the line right now. Steve, how are you? Great. Thanks for having me, Frank. Now, are you in where? Arizona? Yeah, we're in uh, we're in the Phoenix uh, metro area, so uh, it's already hot here. I'll, I'll bet. <laughs> now, now tell people a little bit about the Professional Beauty Association and what you are and who you represent. Yeah, so we're the the nonprofit trade association representing manufacturers of professional products, the distributors of those products, the salon owners, and the licensed uh, working beauty professionals themselves. So kind of the full full supply chain there. Now, are you getting bombarded with uh, complaints and requests for help from people all over the country? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's been obviously a uh, challenging time for everyone. For us in particular, the work has changed, you know, almost overnight in uh, what what we're doing to support our members uh, going through the crisis right now. So we've got members all across the country, and uh, you know, we've been rapidly building resources and information and guidance and doing webinars and starting a relief fund to help folks uh, weather the storm. And uh, yeah, we've got a tremendous outpouring of, of response. We've offered up a free membership for individuals who can join the association as well and get access to benefits so it's been a been a hectic time but uh you know we're, we're helping our members as best we can well, now here in pennsylvania you know the, the controversy is that the governor is putting different parts of the state in in a color code uh, of course if you're red everything's shut down you're a stay-at-home order but 24 counties on friday are going into what they call the yellow zone where daycares can open and there's no restriction on masks and it's really not a stay-at-home order. But the barbers and the beauty professionals have to stay closed. And a lot of people are wondering why. So my question to you is, you know, as a professional, as a guy that keeps your finger on the, on the pulse of the entire industry, do you believe that, that your clients can open safely? I do believe they can. And, you know, we're seeing it across the country, different ways of going about it, different phases and names and segments. Um, but, you know, we've, we've been gearing up to help guide our members on what that looks like to safely reopen. So we just just issued some, some new guidance on the kinds of standards and things that licensed professionals are going to have to have in place to safely serve their clientele. And, you know, we're a little bit different as an industry. Obviously, uh, social distancing is impossible when you're, you're you know, one-on-one -on -one with, a, with a guest. So appropriate precautions are going to be important to maintain the health and safety of both the, the individual professional and their, their, their clients. So what are some of the stuff that you're recommending or suggesting? Well, a host of different things. You know, I think the one thing that's really important to point out, though, is that this is an industry that's licensed and regulated to begin with. So if you've got a, a license to practice cosmetology or you're a nail technician or you're an, es uh, an esthetician, you know, you've gone through extensive training um, to get your license. And a, a big part of that is the health and safety component. So this is no new news to our industry to understand how to practice um, protocols and have safe and effective um, disinfection protocols in place. So the good news is we're starting from a place of knowledge. Uh, but the new things that we've, we're, we're recommending that are added on are obviously face masks um, that have to be worn by both clients and the uh, licensed professional 
staggering chairs to create that six foot spatial distance, um, closing down, you know, waiting areas so that folks aren't, you know, congregating in a, in a reception area waiting for their appointment, getting rid of drinks and amenities and things that uh, a salon might have in place to make their customer um, experience more um, exciting. Um, people waiting in cars until they're called, appointment only, limiting walk-ins if allowing them at all. So, you know, some of it's common sense, but obviously a heightened degree of um, more disinfection, right? So going to be putting down in between every single client, uh, you know, a full cleanup, disposable capes versus washable capes, things like that where, you know, it's just going to be new and it's going to be different and everyone's just going to have to adjust. Um, I think that's the, the bottom line is clients and, and pros have got to expect that it's not going to be the same, you know, for a while. And so to get back open, these are the ways we got to do it. Otherwise we're right back to square one. Now I'm looking at your website and you have a bunch of webinars, uh, going back to work plan, but, but the one that's getting my interest right now is breaking down the economic stimulus package. Now is the economic stimulus package helping or is it just, too cumbersome for a lot of businesses. You know, it's, it's been a real mixed bag. I think like, like other industries, we're hearing from some of our members that have had success. They've gotten their loans and uh, they've gotten their PPP loans. Others that are still waiting. We've got, you know, the individual licensed professionals who are either working independently or working as an employee, uh, struggling to get unemployment benefits. Some have gotten them, some haven't. So I think it's like, uh, like we're seeing across the rest of the country in most industries. It's a bit of a checkerboard. It's, it's a mixed bag. And I, you know, we're doing the best we can to steer people to the right resources, uh, help them one-on-one. Like we've got a, a, a policy team of a government affairs team here that helps people find resources if they're not on a webinar. Um, and you're just doing everything you can to answer questions and help folks. And I think a lot of it is, Frank, is just people want to be heard. They need to connect. They need to have a place, have a, someone, you know, help them and try and guide them as best we can. So, Well, you know, I over the weekend I did a Google search and I just... My search was simple. It said uh, resources, charities to help uh, beauty professionals. And the first thing that popped up was you folks, the PBA Disaster Relief Fund. Tell me about that. Yeah, so it's a it's a long-standing program. It's been in place for many decades, and it was primarily designed to deal with regional disasters. You know, a fire, a flood, a hurricane. Uh, obviously, we're dealing with something here that's a whole new magnitude of disaster. So we quickly pivoted the fund to reflect the national scope. Uh, quickly began fundraising because we're starting with a small you know a small war chest to begin with, nothing significant, and then opened up the application to uh, licensed professionals fast. And it's been a it's been a tremendous Tremendous amount of uh, inquiries and applications for aid, you know, almost so many that it breaks your heart because we know we're not going to be able to help everyone. But within a week, we were already funding the first round of applications with whatever donations we had received to that point. And um, I'm, I'm happy today to say we've raised, looks like a little over 1.3 million, and we've already dispersed close to a million. So we've turned the dollars around fast, and some of the folks that are getting the aid are, you know, telling us this is the first support I've gotten from anywhere. I've gotten no federal aid. I've gotten no state unemployment. You know, you name it. Uh, PBA has been the first one to put some cash in my hands. And and I know that you are still accepting donations and some of those are coming in, but can the people who are listening right now who are beauty professionals still apply? 
Yeah, they can still apply. Um, you know, that's the one thing we've been trying to be clear on. Like, look, there's so many applications, but we're doing it on a, a lottery basis. So every time we get a, call it a, a chunk of funding, we go through a round of drawing applications out of the pool, and we award those funds. As the next funds accumulate, we go back and do the same process. So as long as your name is in the application process in the pool, uh, every time we do a round of funding, you have another chance to, to get an award. Um, and I know that's like, you know, everyone would want to know, hey, if I applied, I'm going to get money for sure. You know, if we had a if we had a war chest of, of hundreds of millions, we could do it. Um, uh, but that's just not our reality right now. But we're, we're helping a lot of folks. It looks like about 2,000 people will have gotten aid here within probably the end of the week. And uh, we're making a difference wherever we can. Okay, so where do people get the information on the Disaster Relief Fund and where do they apply? Yeah, really simple. ProBeauty.org is the website, and you'll see right on the homepage information about the relief fund, about the resources. Uh, that's the easiest place to go. Plus, they can look at uh, a free membership offer that we're offering to folks to help them out as well. So ProBeauty.org, everything is there. Pretty self-explanatory once you hit the homepage. Steve, are you aware of, of beauty professionals that have opened up in some states and whether or not there have been any problems? So far, no problems. Yes, we're, you know, Atlanta was early. We had some really um, prominent salon owners in, in Atlanta who were, who were really taking it seriously. Like, they, they followed the, the, some of the guidelines that we had put together and then some, right? So they, they really were careful because um, they knew they were early. Um, but these are some smart, thoughtful owners, and uh, so far, so good. Like, I think that's what everyone's concerned about is that no one knows, right? No one knows how these things uh, will evolve. Um, and we're taking all the precautions and all the right steps to ensure, you know, the best chance we possibly can of having no issues. And let's uh, let's keep our fingers crossed. Mara Scali Shahan from uh, the National Association of Barber Boards. And she's on the line with us right now. Mara, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me, Frank. Now, you're in, you're in sunny Florida, right? I am. And it's very sunny here today. <laughs> now, your barbers in Florida aren't open either, are they? Not yet. Not yet. Um, I do know that our governor met with some representatives from the industry that included salons and uh, barbershops and um, uh, some nail techs um, just a couple days ago. So at least he's looking into it. Okay. Now, for, for people that don't know, what is the National Association of Barber Boards of America? All right. Well, we are a group that was founded back in 1926 uh, for the purpose of maintaining professional standards and policies in the barbering industry. Um, our mission is to support the state licensing boards in their authority to protect the public uh, by upholding the health and safety standards uh, that we can attain through policies and protocols of the barbering industry itself. Things such as sanitation and infection control procedures, um, licensing criteria, and that type of thing. Now, simple, basic question. Do you, I mean, you are, you are a master barber, I, I understand, correct? Yes, sir. Okay. You're a master barber. You've been around the block a few times with this business. Do you believe that barbers and hair salons can open safely in this uh, coronavirus situation? Um, I personally do think that they can, and um, so do a lot of our members and, uh, you know, just barbers that are out there in the community. Um, what your listeners should know is that as licensed professionals, 
We've been trained in infection control procedures. Mm -hmm. uh, that's required for our licensure. And the reputable uh, practitioners have been following these procedures and infection uh, and universal precautions for HIV, Hep C, MRSA, and other infectious diseases for years. And don't they and also get an annual inspection from a surprise inspection from inspectors? Aren't that a normal procedure for inspectors just to walk in one day and ask to see their license and their procedures? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Now, yes. now, you know, Mark and I were joking yesterday, and I talked to you about this. I asked you when we were talking over the weekend, what is barbicide? And you point, you, you reminded me that that's that infamous blue jar that we <laughs> see the scissors and the combs and everything in, which is part of the whole keeping everything sanitary, right? Exactly. Um, the barbicide is actually a disinfectant. Uh, the, the first step that one must take before they immerse any of their tools or implements in the barbicides is to clean them. It's, uh, infection control is a two-step process uh, in that particular instance. You have to clean and disinfect. Now, are you aware of any state that has allowed barbers and beauty professionals to open? Uh, yes, and um, as of today... Uh, I believe 13 states have opened, and that there's another six that are planning to reopen by May 25th, along with certain restrictions, of course. Right, and, and we understand that it's like maybe one customer at a time or just the social distancing and the masks and all that. I mean, that, that's a no-brainer. We all understand that. We just, we just you know, the, the argument here is why can we walk into a Walmart or a Home Depot where there's 800 people and we can't go get a haircut? Well, yeah, I mean, that, <clears throat> excuse me, it, that, that is definitely uh, one of the arguments we hear out there. Um, but if we do go along with the CDC guidelines with the, the six-foot, um, you know, social distancing and all, the, the, when they think about our profession, they then jump to, well, we're in closer proximity to our clients. And that's true. We are. However... What needs to be looked at is where we are actually positioned. We typically work behind or to the side of the mm -hmm. client. There's very little face-to-face -face, um, contact of any kind. And if, as the barber, you're wearing a mask, and if your client is wearing a mask or at least holding a mask up to their nose and mouth area, then, you know, it would, it would appear that... You're taking all the precautions you can to mitigate any potential risk. Now, I'm on your website right now, and you have a, a, a PDF that can be downloaded with, it, with a whole bunch of suggestions on how, how barbers can, can safely open. Is that available to the public? Oh, absolutely. They can just go to the download PDF button. And, um, yeah, and that PDF, what we, what we did do was set out two areas, one for preparing to reopen, and then also some post-opening policies and procedures. And I would love for the consumers to take a look at it, because when they do go into a shop or a salon that's been opened, they need to know what to look for. So, and in addition to that, we do have links to the, um, to the Barbicide uh, website, where they also have a back-to-work plan and recommendations 
as well as um, Malady training, um, which is an infection control course and checklist that the shops and salons can use. So um, we've tried to put everything that we can find that's you know relevant to our industry available to uh, anybody who needs it. And what's the website? The website is www.nationalbarberboards.com. And if anybody has any questions or if you're a barber school and you need some guidance or help um, or even a, you know, a shop, uh, feel free to call us at 888-338-0101. Just leave a message and I will call you back as soon as I can. Now, let me ask you a final question here. Are, are there sure. going to be some businesses that just won't be able to make it financially and will never reopen? Well, we certainly don't want to see that happen, but, you know, possibly, probably. Uh, it really depends on how long the states take to allow the shops and salons to, to reopen. And then again, and also the speed at which that the pandemic itself dissipates. Yeah. You know, I mean, look, life is full of risks, right? <laughs> so um, all we can do is mitigate those risks to the best of our ability, um, be consistent. Um, we all care deeply for our customers and, you know, we're looking out for their, their welfare as well as our own. Um, so, you know, it, it, it will be sad to see some shops or salons close. Um, I'm hoping all those folks um, have the wherewithal in whatever form it, it takes um, to weather through it. Mara, thanks for joining us. National Association of Barber Boards of America. You can go to their website and get the information that they recommend and a bunch of links everywhere else. Now, when we come back on Special Edition, we're going to find out from Intercom's Jason Barsky about the upcoming June 2nd primary election in the state, in particular in Luzerne County. There have been some updates, and I'll tell you about those as well, but don't go away. Special Edition will return. Welcome back to Special Edition. During the coronavirus pandemic, so many events have been postponed, others have been canceled, and many things that were supposed to happen, such as the upcoming primary election, was moved. And there's still a lot of discussion surrounding what's going to happen on June 2nd. Walter Griffiths is a member of Luzerne County Council. Intercom's Jason Barsky talks with Walter about the upcoming June 2nd primary. Now, since Walter and Jason talked about the primary, there have been some things that have changed in Luzerne County. I'll bring you up to date with those after we hear their discussion. Luzerne County Councilman Walter Griffith. Quite honestly, Jason, I think that the you know, the issue that we're sitting in currently at, at the in the county level with the emergency and the, the COVID-19 and, and all of the things that we're dealing with in the county, I, I certainly understand that challenge. There's no question about it. I don't, I, I don't want anybody put in any kind of harm's way in any fashion. 
However, you know, when we get an election that's coming up, it's supposed to be April 28th, and the governor extends it to April to June the second. Mm-hmm. If I was in, if I was running things and I had the the hat for the day, I would be my target would be April 28th, regardless of the extension, and then I would address anything that was really a hot issue after April 28th. I wouldn't wait until after April 28th to now start worrying about. Geez, we have an election on June the second. And the Board of Elections hasn't met in over two months. And on a situation where we have a, a real different type of election system, where the county's in lockdown, everybody's in the stay-at-home um, order, yet they have yet to meet by virtual uh, meeting for two months. That's the first problem. The second problem is, you know, now we're going to say as a county council, put my county council hat on, we just took the county taxpayers in debt for over $3 million for electronic voting machines because we were told by the state that if we didn't buy these machines or buy an electronic verification system, that we were not going to be able to have our vote certified. So the county went out to all the taxpayers and made them pay $3 million for voting machines. And the county manager now says, hey, guess what? We're not going to use those machines now because we we have a lockdown. The, everybody's going to the grocery store. I don't know if you've been out to Home Depot this weekend or Lowe's this weekend or to Garrity's or to Wegmans or you pick the, the, the place you can go. You can't get in the building. They're outside waiting to get in at Wegmans at Walmart. Yeah. So so I say, you know what, if this is a if this is a situation where we have a voting situation, that's essential. I mean that's our basic democracy. There's ways we could do this without saying, Well, we have to do everything by mail and ballot. I think you're going to disenfranchise a lot of voters in this county by doing a mail-in ballot. There are people who will not vote by mail-in ballot. Some of the seniors, some of the other people that are very skeptical will not send in a mail-in ballot. They would rather not vote. That's not fair. Is that just based off of conversations or have we seen these mail-in ballots? I forget. What, some, some places actually use them, but have we seen people just hesitant in general? Oh, yeah. I, and if you look at some of the comments on, on Facebook and other uh, social media, you will see that there are people that are saying, if I have to vote by mail-in ballot, I'm not going to vote. And I, don't, and I don't think that that's fair for the county to say, you either vote by mail-in ballot or you don't vote. Yeah. I mean, if you have a, a, a handicap or you're ADA compliant, then you get to use the machine. But if you're just a regular voter, if you come in to vote, they won't let you use the machine. You have to do it by mail-in ballot. How is That's this absurd. How is this different than like just your standard absentee ballot? Well, the absentee ballot, you actually state on the absentee ballot application why you're voting by absentee, whether you have a, uh, a disability or you're a veteran or you have some, some reason to vote by absentee. The state clearly did not think that through with the mail-in ballot and absentee to keep both. But I think they'll probably fix that somewhere along the line. Couldn't, but they have both. As opposed to saying everyone has to do mail-in, couldn't, I'm just thinking out loud here, couldn't an option have been everyone just requests absentee ballots who doesn't want feel comfortable voting and just mails them in that way? Sure. And, and, that, and that the key word in your sentence right there, Jason, is request. The ability for the county to just arbitrarily say, we're going to send in a mail-in ballot application to everybody who's a registered voter in Luzerne County mm-hmm. is absurd. Because now you're going, to have vote har- you're going to have ballot harvesting for people who got an application and they got somebody to sign the application for them. And they'll send it in to get the ballot and they'll vote for whoever they want. That's the biggest issue that I'm having. But more importantly is if you don't want a mail-in ballot and you didn't request a mail-in ballot and one comes in the mail, you're going to go, oh, geez, I guess I should fill this out. Nah, I'm not going to fill that out. I won't even go vote. They're going to think that that's the only way they can vote. 
you have to request it. And as I said at the meeting to, to Mr. Pedri, is if we could do it this way, why isn't the state sending out the ballot applications to everybody in the, in the Commonwealth? I mean, everybody in the Commonwealth has the same problem. Why isn't Harrisburg sending out mail-in ballot applications to everybody in the Commonwealth that's a registered voter? Would it just be because the can. county themselves have to manage the, the elections themselves? Well, they, 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 they would manage the applications as they came in. Right. But the application process could be done by the state. They could send them out to everybody in the state as an application. They can't because the statute won't allow it. The statute says you have to request a mail-in ballot or you have to request a absentee ballot. You can't arbitrarily just send them to people, but that's what they're going to do. And, and, I, and I understand the safety issues. We can save distance. If we can save distance at Walmart, we can save distance at a polling place. We can give everybody a stylus. They don't have to touch the screen. They can use the stylus. You can sign the electronic poll book. Instead of doing an electronic poll book, he wants to go to a paper poll book. That's costing us more money. And the, obvious, the, the answer is, well, the state's paying the bill. It's still my money. It's still taxpayer money. I don't care who's yeah. paying the bill if it's taxpayer money. But I just think that, you know, we have 50 days that they could send out mail-in ballots. The law allows the Bureau to send out mail-in ballots within 50 days of the election. You know when they're sending them out? Next week. Yeah. Why? Why would you wait when you had 50 days to send these out? Why are you waiting 25 days before the election to send these ballots out? This is ludicrous. You, you mentioned, uh, talking to uh, Luzerne County Councilman Walter Griffith, you mentioned uh, David Pedry, the uh, county manager, didn't present this plan or hasn't presented there. Well, he presented something to county council as his, uh, as his plan that he okay. wants to present to the Board of Elections. Okay. But the question that I have is this plan should have been presented to the Board of Elections months ago. On, on March 25th, when they had the lockdown order, there should have been provisions made in place to have a virtual public meeting with the Board of Elections and the Bureau to discuss all of these things and get the stuff all hashed out. Because if the board doesn't approve the election plan that Mr. Pedri has, they only have another six days to come up with an alternative plan. You Wouldn't, have to have everything in place 15 days before the election. Wouldn't the alternative plan at this point then be just open up the polling stations? Well, it, that is the alternate plan, but according to, uh, to the county manager, a lot of the polling places won't let us come there. We have mm -hmm. 144 polling places, so we only have 58 now, and he's going to change them all the school districts. And then we, we also have the issue with poll workers that all want to come out. You know, all of these things that are now, what, 25 days before the election now is a big crisis? This should have been all hashed out in March. We should have called every polling place in March. We should have called every poll worker in March or the beginning of April to say, hey, are you willing to work the polls? Are you having an issue that, you know, if we provide you right. proper protection, would you work the polls? That didn't happen. We just sat back and said, eh, well, we'll just wait until we get closer. And, you know, when the Board of Elections decide to have a meeting, we'll have a meeting. They should have had three meetings before now. What do you, uh, what, what, like, what kind of compromise would you be willing to put forward and what is legally allowed? Because I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, all right, we see the drive through testing sites. Could we mail people ballots and say, drop this ballot off in person just by driving by? <laughs> you know, roll your window down and drop your ballot in. And we could drop it off like we're, we're dropping things in the mail. Or instead well, I imagine you probably could do, uh, uh, the, the biggest issue that I have is the legality, the certification. All the things that are supposed to be done according to the according to state law that is supposed to be done before an election to protect our democracy, mm -hmm. our basic right to vote and our basic right to choose a candidate of our choosing is all being violated because of an emergency 
where the county is saying, well, you know, we can't, we got to throw everything out the window. Everything is fair game. We could do whatever we want now because there's an emergency. And I say, you know what? We have candidates that are running. They want a fair and honest election. All they want is a fair and honest election. And if you're going to just, you know, throw caution to the wind and say, hey, you know what? We're going to do whatever we want. And it's not a big deal. It's a real big deal. This is what we, this is what our basic democracy is grounded in. This is our foundation of elections, fair and honest elections. Do you think the, you don't uh, have any way to verify, yeah. you know, you're, you're not doing that. Do you think the election committee is going to side with uh, David Pedri or do you think they're going to say, sorry, we're, we're well, not going to do this? Where do you, where do you think it's going? I would, I would think, I would, I would hope that the Bureau of Elections or the Board of Elections would say to Mr. Pedri, we need more information to verify that this is actually going to work. Do you have enough people working the polls? Do you have enough polling places? Have you got confirmation from these places to say, yes, you can vote here? Do you have confirmation from your poll workers that says, yes, I'm going to work? Yeah. Do you have all those confirmations? Do we have enough staff to do the tally of mail-in ballots, number is most important? And and what you know what, what are we going to do with these people that are going to go in? All he wants to do now is a paper ballot. You color in the oval and you send it through a scanner. Well, when I was a public citizen, I stood at the podium and said, why are we spending $4 million on a machine that'll print out a paper ballot when all we have to do is have the voters yeah. print a paper ballot? We would save a whole lot of money. And I was told, oh, we can't go back 30 years in time. These people would be writing ballots. Do they have proper areas for the people to do their ballots? Secrecy places where you could sit down at a right. desk and color in your oval. Walter? Nobody knows any of that. Yeah, I get a text. Someone says, I, Jason, I, I work the polls. I will no longer, I'm not going to sit at a table and have people who sign the book just cough and sneeze at the risk. Um, if what, what is your suggestion? Because I know you don't want the mail-in ballot. And I, and I understand that. I don't know if I have the same overall fears that some people have, but I understand the concern there, if that makes any sense. Oh, like I, I, I clearly understand the concern, and I understand that you know the, the mail-in ballot system is a good idea if we're going to use it properly. Okay. But if we're going to use it improperly, I don't think it's a good idea. People so, that want one, that don't want to go to the polls, fine. Fill out an application, send it into the county, let them mail you. We have county workers there to have a county-owned cell phone with county-owned phone numbers, and they have yet to put that number online so people can contact them if the line is busy at the Bureau of Elections. But if they, if they, can't, if well, they can't get enough workers, what is your suggestion? Well, our suggest, my suggestion is the law doesn't allow that. My suggestion is the law says you have to have a poll worker and you have to have a certain amount as a board of elections at the polls. You have to have a judge, you have to have a minority, you have to have a majority, and you have to have poll workers. I would suggest that they should have went out and either got the whole of schools to find out if any students could do it, because the law allows that. They could have went out and found out how, how short are they do we know how short we really are? We may not be short. They may not have called anybody, and everybody's just saying, hey, if they don't call me, then I'm not going to go. I don't know what their planning is, but I clearly don't believe that not having poll workers is an option in the law. No, I don't. In the I law, don't. Says you will have them. Yeah. I understand. No, I, I, think, so, I know we need those. I'm just wondering because the person who just texted in, I've seen, I think there was another one that came in and said, I'm not going to do it either. Um, and, and we don't have them. I don't know what the plan would be. So. Well, like, how well, I think I think that, I think that's the problem is there is no plan for that should have been all ironed out back in March. So that way now when we're in May 2nd or 3rd, now we could have a board discussion about, hey, we have 55 polling places, 58 polling places. and We only have two poll workers. What are we going to do now? That would be the discussion. And that fact would be known then. But yeah. now we're getting a plan that we're just getting. Well, this is what we think we're going to do. What's the board say? The well, board should have voted at least three times by now well, and had gonna... public meetings. See, I encourage Jason as the candidates. 
to come out and talk about it because they have a vested interest in an honest and fair election. And they're the ones who are going to suffer if there's ballot harvesting, yeah. if there's going to be you know shenanigans of some sort at a polling place. Mm-hmm. Those are the ones that will suffer. So they need to get on the phone and say, what are you doing? Are you following the law or not? Because if you're not following the law and I happen to lose, I think I could challenge this election. Because it's going to be close in the 8th District. You've got five or six or seven candidates running in the 8th District for Congress. It may be close to a couple hundred votes. That well, somebody may challenge it based on the fact they didn't do their due diligence. Walter, I agree with you, but i, I got to say this. I, and I do agree with you. I, I just The idea of candidates challenging election results, I hated it when it's on the uh, the highest level presidency i can't imagine it in a bunch of local elections oh my yeah. god well, i feel like I we're going to be exhausted but, but look i just uh, think it should be fair uh, yeah i mean and it's it's a strange time where there's got to be yep. some some give and take i think and as long as that people are willing to talk to each other but we don't have any issues do we no uh, no. <laughs> no i hope Not we <laughs> Uh, Sarcasm brought to you by Walter. Uh, listen, I appreciate that. I appreciate your time. Uh, Luzerne County Councilman Walter Griffith. That meeting that Walter and Jason talked about of the Luzerne County Board of Elections was held earlier this week via video conference. When it was over, they approved much of what County Manager David Pedry's plan was for the upcoming June 2nd primary. They will allow the use of paper ballots at in-person polling sites, but not paper poll books. Instead, voters will use the electronic poll book system. Consolidating polling places throughout the county was also approved, and also approved judges of election and other poll workers will receive the highest compensation allowed under state law. In Lackawanna County, the commissioners there met virtually earlier this week, and they extended the county's emergency declaration until June 8th. That extension will allow the Lackawanna County Government Center to remain closed, which in turn will accommodate the counting of mail-in ballots for the June 2nd primary election. Lackawanna County commissioners say they anticipate possibly more than 30,000 mail-ins, so counting that is planned to be done in the lobby of the building could continue into Election Week. And if we hear of any more changes, we'll share them with you on Special Edition. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories, a production of Intercom Communications. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 